Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show paramedic, EMS coordinator, and the woman behind emergency resilience, Alex Jaber. Now, the first conversation we had was in October 2020, and areas of her expertise include death notification and mental health. So as you can imagine, two plus years later, as we emerged from the pandemic, this was an incredible conversation. Not only did we dive into that perspective when it came to so many paramedics, doctors and nurses that are exposed to the multiple deaths that we had, we also transitioned into her new work. Now, Alex has just finished her PhD and her dissertation was on the application of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy when it comes to mental health in the fire service. So we discuss a host of topics from stigmas and fallacies around ketamine, therapeutic application, the success in the mental health world with this drug, her own personal experience, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating that you leave truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Alex Jaber. Enjoy. All right. Well, Alex, I want to welcome you back to the Behind the Shield podcast today. For everyone listening, we did an interview. Um, and what I love about this whole podcast process is once in a while, someone will say to me, "Ah, I don't think that felt quite right. And almost every single time I'm like, you know what? I, I agree. I wasn't in a good place. We just didn't gel. So we are recording again now. So welcome back now for the third time, technically. Well, thank you. And for the record, the first time was completely irrelevant. This is just a retake of this topic. So thank you for your grace uh, and your generous time with me to meet with me a second time in the last couple of days. Well, like I said, it's a conversation and in that both people need to be you know, fully present. And obviously, it's brand new work for you. So you're kind of trying to get your head around how to deliver that information now. That day for me, as I told you, I had a stinking headache, which kind of took me out, put me a little foggy. So um, for everyone listening, the first very first conversation we did was episode 396, which I think we figured out was... October 2020, if my memory serves me right. So as a kind of icebreaker, as an opener, you you were the first person I really heard discussing the term moral injury. You were also the first person I'd really heard unpack death notification and, and dealing with death as a first responder. So we go through this pandemic and everyone's lens is a little different. I've had people that, you know, were completely untouched by it living in rural areas. I had people that were stacking bodies in, in Los Angeles. Um, so there's a real spectrum of interactions. But there were some people that were dealing with a huge amount of death notifications and obviously the inability to save and the immoral injury attached to that. So through your eyes, with the work that you've done, just what are your observations of the last couple of years? 
Right. Well, um, I think first off, I think that we are not, I don't know that COVID is so far in our rear view mirror that we even have an idea, like a, a firm enough grasp of just how much of an impact that time had on a personal level, a professional level, an industry and, you know, healthcare system level. I think that for me anyways, I, I've kind of peeked at some of the studies, but I wonder, are we far enough out of it to really see the ramifications of it, right? And then are we asking some of the right questions? So for example, I was thinking about it because you did ask me about, you know, the increase like of suicide. Could this have increased the risk of suicide? And I think uh, common sense says yes, right? But it's not an overnight process. Nobody comes to that decision or nobody breaks to that point. Let's put it that way and, and seeks out that kind of unthinkable relief that it brings for them. Like they're seeking relief, right? They're not trying to do it to hurt anybody. They're, they're trying to do it to find something that they're not able to find anywhere else, whatever that might be. I mean, suicide is such a complex issue, right? But it's not something that happens overnight. And, you know, one of the risk factors or one of the co-occurring events that often happens with suicide is divorce is one of them. And I think there's been a, I've lost track of how many people I know in my network that are getting a divorce right now. And, you know, it's almost like they, they made it through COVID and now it's happening. Right. So I, I, I tried to apply that and wonder, okay, what does that look like for suicide? What does that look like for mental health? What does that look like for different coping mechanisms and all that? And are we still seeing what the outcome is from it? I, I don't know how to answer that, but I, it's, these are the questions I'm asking myself. Now, what about from a death notification point of view? I mean, you have a lot of these, you know, paramedics, doctors, nurses that, you know, depending on where they work, maybe weren't seeing, you know, a huge amount of codes. And now all of a sudden that was kind of thrust upon a lot of people. And let's say a new paramedic, for example, or a new doctor or a new nurse. Now they open the door into this, you know, absolute shit show if you're in these kind of hotspot areas. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that, that definitely went up. I want to say it was the... 2021 ESO index report that showed there was a either it was either 43 or 48% jump in death notifications delivered pre and post or during pandemic. I can't remember the exact parameter times uh, that they found that, but yeah, they were finding that people were giving death notifications at a much higher rate. And so they looked at this and were saying, you know, we need more death notification training, uh, but what I looked at was look at how many people were delivering them untrained in the first place. So for me, I see how COVID brought out this deficiency. It augmented this deficiency that was already present. And what's interesting in the, the timing of my business and the timing of me bringing out my death notification courses, I released it in, I think it was February of 2021, but I signed the contract to get it produced. I already had the class done. And I had worked with an agency to help me film it and turn it into a course because I wanted to do it professionally. I signed that contract back in February of 2020. I remember being out for St. Patrick's Day a couple of days early. And that was the first time that bars were like, you got to go home. And we're like, what do you mean you got to go home? Like that was my first like real big wave 
uh, of realizing, oh, this is changing something. So I had already had it in motion to get this death notification course out there. I'd already identified that this was a deficiency. This was something I wanted to do. This was something I wanted to share. And I wanted to create continuing education for first responders. I wanted to create continuing education that they didn't have to take that was written for in-health, in-hospital healthcare providers, which there's nothing wrong with that. They need this training too. But I found that as a, as a paramedic, I was constantly having to take material that was developed for another industry that was relative enough that I then had to adapt to mine. And I didn't think that was fair, right? So I wanted to create something for first responders. And I remember when the world shut down and I had conferences that had been lined up that got canceled one after the other. And I thought, oh, this is a bad idea. And in that moment, I remember having this wave of regret and guilt because I thought, well, who's going to want to take my course now? How selfish of it, of me to think of myself and putting something out there when the whole world is ending, I could not in that moment of like how just up close and blind I was to the possibilities, I could not correlate how this was a need that was going to become amplified, that more people were going to need help with this than ever before. So thanks for that question and giving me a moment to reflect on that. That said, uh, two things came out around that time. So one of them was the ESO index. Um, that was eventually published into a paper, those statistics. And then the other one was a paper that was published in, I want to say it was early 2021 or late 2020, that showed that five or more death notifications in a 12-month period led to a 73% increase risk of burnout in healthcare, in EMS professionals. Five. There were people given five a day during that peak of the pandemic, right? And the antidote was training. The antidote was not just talking about it in your primary, you know, paramedic school, EMT school. It was ongoing training. Now, here's the kicker about it is that people will look at that and go, wow, well, of course, of course, it would lead to an increase of burnout during the pandemic. There were all these, you know, like you said, people were stacking bodies. People were doing things that we didn't really have compartments for in our brains at that time, in our minds. But the data from that study was pulled in like 2017. So it's already outdated in a way, or I should say it's not irrelevant, outdated, but it's like, how much worse is it because of the level or the degree in which people were giving death notifications on top of a pandemic, right? Like I can't even conceptualize that. Yeah, because I can just think of my career. I mean, I worked in some very busy places and, you know, I mean, forget 12-month period, just with no pandemic going on. If you work in a busy, especially if it's a poorer area where self-care is lower, you're given death notifications, you know, all the time, multiple times a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people are waiting because they don't have health care. They don't have accessibility to a vehicle. They maybe, I mean, my mom was a great example of somebody who would wait till the absolute last minute before she called 911. I mean, she never did, honestly. And there were at least three times I can think of where she should have. So that's a good point. Well, you talked about setting this up in February 2020. I'm sure a lot of conspiracy theorists are starting to write your name down and be like, ah, I think we finally figured it out. <laughs> I know. This was not part of a bigger business model, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> Jaber, that sounds Chinese to me. <laughs> Let them. 
All right. Well, I want to kind of shift over because obviously this is the, the bulk of what the conversation is going to be about today to your um, dissertation, your PhD. So we go through this pandemic. Your work up to this point has, as we mentioned, been focused on you know, moral injury and um, death notification and mental health and the responder. What took you towards the, the, the subject that you chose in your most recent work? So I just wrapped up my PhD program in May of this year, so a couple months ago, and the first two and a half years are spent in the classroom doing your doctorate work, and you kind of start marinating on the idea of what you want your dissertation to be on, and your dissertation are the last two years, uh, so a couple weeks after you finish your last quarter, your two-week, two-week, I wish, two-year <laughs> dissertation clock begins, and you essentially pick a topic that speaks to you in some way, because you're going to be spending like literally it embodies every part and it seeps into every part of your life that if you don't pick something that you like or that you're interested in, it's like, it's got to be like pulling teeth. I can only imagine. This was hard for me to do. And I was so in love with the idea. I was so dedicated to learning about this topic. So... I knew I wanted to research something that would benefit first responders. I wanted something that would benefit their mental health, well-being. I didn't want to focus on the problem. I didn't want to talk more about suicide. I didn't, there's gaps in, I think, the suicide literature, but I didn't want to research more of the problem. I think we, we've come to a general consensus that first responders in general have mental health conditions that are perpetuated, if not caused by the job itself, right? And I chose to work with the idea of using psychedelic therapy, specifically ketamine, for firefighters with PTSD and co-occurring conditions like depression, suicidal ideation, alcohol abuse, and so on. And so I knew that I just wanted to work on something that obviously might bridge a way to discuss something that hadn't been discussed formally before. So I'm not saying that firefighters aren't out there talking about this idea. I mean, anybody that listens to Joe Rogan or Andrew Huberman certainly have heard about the idea of psychedelic therapy, but at the time of publication a few months ago, at least I haven't looked it up and I don't intend to, I hope that it just creates more literature out there. But at the time of publication, this was the only piece of literature that intersected those two topics, which was firefighters with PTSD and ketamine-assisted therapy, psychotherapy, to treat that. And so initially, I mean, you start off big, right? When you're, when you're a brand new student, you want to change the world. And then reality sets in and you go, okay, let's scale it back a little bit. Let's, you know, come, come down off of this grandiose idea that you're going to change everything with it. And you, you relieve yourself of that pressure and just realize that if I can even leave one breadcrumb towards helping the greater collective find their way to a solution, I've done my part. So, and initially I wanted to find, <laughs> I, initially I would have loved to find fire firefighters to put through ketamine assisted psychotherapy and then document their testimonies and my school said no they're like absolutely not too much of a liability lawyers said no I was like oh okay 
in hindsight, I did not have the time to do something like that. Like this was not the time for clinical research. I, and then I thought, or I'm sorry, my, my team, my advisory team had suggested, why don't you find firefighters who have done ketamine and interview them about their experience with it? Because this was a phenomenological study, which is essentially the lived experience, right? So this is more your qualitative storytelling data rather than your quantitative numbers and this percentage responded to that kind of data. And I thought, that's a great idea. Let me do that. And so I tried to find an applicant pool with absolutely no luck. And so last minute, literally what I refer to as the 11th hour, because I got down to a point where I thought, if I don't switch gears now, I will not graduate on time. And not graduating on time was not an option. You technically have up to six and a half years, I think six or six and a half years to finish your dissertation. And I told myself, no, I was either going to finish or I wasn't. And so we shifted and I ended up asking union leaders throughout the state of California, firefighter union leaders to speak to me about the idea of this treatment modality for their firefighters with PTSD, just to see what would come of that. And that's where the starting point was of this final piece of work. So I had a guest, Dr. Uh, sorry, not Dr. Catherine Walker. I don't think she's technically a doctor, but she's a, a nurse anesthetist. Um, and so she she ended up kind of tripping over the the research that the very drug that she used to you know sedate a patient so they could have surgery was working well in some areas of PTSD and other, and other mental health challenges. So she has since actually left the surgical space completely and opened clinics for you know ketamine therapy and ketamine-assisted um, psychotherapy. So, But she was really the only person I had on the show that spoke about ketamine specifically. A lot of people talked about psychedelics and ibogaine and ayahuasca, but not ketamine. The problem is in our completely failed war on drugs prohibition, um, you know, it is created such barrier to entry to anyone that access any of the other ones that people had amazing success with except ketamine so ketamine is the one legal drug um in our first conversation you gave a great description of psychedelic versus i think is it pseudo psychedelic or um whatever the term was so kind of talk to me about the the kind of spectrum of psychedelics and where ketamine falls in that so one thing i want to bring up uh before i forget is the observations she had with her surgical patients. I'm really curious. I want to go back and listen to that. Now, would, well, I don't know if you would know off the top of your head how long ago you interviewed her, but. I don't think it, it wasn't observations of a patient. I think it was, but you know, she was someone who was passionate about her work. So I think when she started researching the drug, this alternative element started showing us how I think that's what happened. So there was a study that was done post- I don't remember how long ago it was. And it was a retrospective analysis. So it was basically they took a bunch of uh, soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan who had sustained severe injuries, uh, burn injuries specifically, that had to do subsequent surgeries to repair the damage that had been done. And for those who don't know, ketamine is both, a, it's an um, a, basically used in surgery for sedative purposes, but it's also used in pre-hospital care and in the hospital as well for analgesic or pain relieving purposes. But in the hospital, they use it as part of a cocktail that they do to 
I don't know all the details of it, obviously she would, to put people under. And what the study found was that the report or the occurrence of PTSD in these soldiers that received ketamine as part of their surgical procedures was significantly lower than those who didn't, even though the ones who reported less PTSD were part of groups that had higher degrees of body surface area that was burned and had subsequent surgeries, meaning they had more critical injuries. And granted, there was a lot of flaws in the study. There's only so much you can look at looking back. It wasn't controlled. This wasn't one of those things that they could design going forward, but it did have some eye-opening results. And I wrote about, I don't remember the exact uh, study off the top of my head, but I did write about that in my, in my dissertation. So I thought that was really fascinating. And recently somebody reached out to me about um, another physician that had identified something similar. And so I'll have to look that up and and get that back to you. But that all said, um, you asked me what about ketamine versus the other psychedelics or why I picked this? Yeah, well, the, the different types of classifications. You, you mentioned that, you know, ayahuasca, um, 5-MeO, DMT, et cetera, are in a certain category, but ketamine was in a separate one. Yes. Yeah, so in a couple different ways. So there uh, is obviously the schedule system. You've got your schedule one through, I don't know if it's five or six uh, drugs. It's It's pretty useless i would say in today's world they need to actually revisit that for multiple reasons that we don't have time to get into today uh but uh your psychedelics like uh ayahuasca psilocybin or magic mushrooms as they're often referred to as lsd and all that those are all your schedule one drugs and schedule one are supposed to be the ones that are the least therapeutic highest risk of addiction and abuse And ketamine actually is not a schedule one. It is a schedule substance, don't get me wrong, but it's a schedule three. And a schedule three drug obviously has more, uh, it's deemed more therapeutically beneficial versus a schedule one, and it has much less risk of addiction and abuse, right? So that's why it's it's scheduled on, on that end of that spectrum right in the middle. A lot of people don't realize this, but ketamine is scheduled right alongside things like Tylenol with codeine, Tylenol 3. Uh, it's scheduled right alongside testosterone, which there's an abundance of people in the fire service who are taking testosterone, right? Because of the exposure to stuff and the sleep cycles and all that, right? So that's really eye-opening for a lot of people in that it's no different then going to a physician, determining that you have low testosterone that might be contributing to a variety of ailments, right? T- depression being one of them and being prescribed testosterone, right? It's, it's completely legal to have a prescription and take a medication that a doctor has identified you would benefit from, that you have a condition that you need it. It's no different when it comes to ketamine, going and seeing a physician or a practitioner in that case with this woman, it was an NP or a nurse anesthetist and working with someone that can prescribe and determine whether or not you're a candidate for this and then prescribe it and, and deliver it. Right now on another classification, you have what's referred to as classic psychedelics, which this is your uh, DMT is the compound in ayahuasca. 
mescaline is the compound found in things like San Pedro, which is a cactus. And then psilocybin is the psychogenic compound found in mushroom. Those directly work on serotonin receptors. And even though those are all found in nature, LSD, which is lab made, was uh, developed by a Swiss chemist, Albert Hoffman in the 1930s, 1930s, discovered in 1940s. That's also deemed a classic psychedelic because of its impact on the serotonin receptors of the body. Ketamine is, if you really want to split hairs, it's not a psychedelic in the classic psychedelic terms, but it is considered a hallucinogen and it does behave a lot like a psychedelic. Now, the mechanisms of action are not 100% understood in, I should say it like this, there's still so much to discover and learn about how psychedelics work. What makes them work, right? What is it about it that makes them effective? What is the therapeutic dose? What is this, you know, all those things. There's so many things we still need to know. But when it comes to ketamine, it has a couple of different mechanism of action theories that have nothing to do with serotonin. So at this time anyways, so in that sense, it's not regarded as a classic psychedelic, but it is used extensively in the psychedelic world, when I was at my, uh, I went to the big MAPS conference in Denver a couple of weeks ago, and they're talking psychedelics, or I'm sorry, they're talking ketamine left and right, because it is the it is the one that is accessible throughout the country, right? It is a schedule three, it is legally accessible, it's not something that they have to go to a retreat in Costa Rica to legally access it's something that if you live at least in a big city or within a distance of a big city, not in a rural area, you should be able to find a clinician that offers psychedelic therapy or a ketamine therapy for uh, psychotherapy. So when you were trying to find these firefighters that had tried it before, again, I've, I've seen the stigma that is around, you know, some of these things, which, again, the stigma is purely there because of the ridiculous, you know, prohibition of the 1930s moving forward. And now you've got people that literally serve their communities here or they fight for their country, come back and need the very thing that is illegal in this nation and have to go, as you mentioned, to Mexico, Costa Rica, etc. So you decide to kind of hit on this topic. You can't find any firefighters who have, have tried this. Talk to me about the stigma side. We've, we've, we've discussed the kind of medical application. Talk to me about the barriers to this discussion in general. Well, it's... It, it, it's tied to psychedelics, right? So even if it's not a classic psychedelic, it's still regarded as one, right? We can still get away with lumping it in there. So of course, all the stigma that comes alongside that, because when people think of psychedelics and especially stigmas, they they go to LSD very often. Uh, but all of them have, a lot of people aren't bad-mouthing ayahuasca mostly because they don't know how to spell it <laughs> it's a little bit <laughs> it is <laughs> it is it's a lot easier to spell lsd i that's my theory right that's just my opinion but uh you know ayahuasca is not deemed in the media as this you know thing that makes you out of control loopy you know that's the thing too is i see psychedelics showing up a little bit more in pop culture and in, in TV shows and movies. And it's still regarded in a very poor form. I think uh, it's usually when it comes up, somebody's doing it not for therapeutic reasons. They're doing it recreationally. They are taking too much. They are not having a sitter. They get themselves in some sort of conundrum that 
you know, add stress to the dynamic of that episode, right? So it's not being highlighted in this positive light. The exception would be, and I'm a big fan of the show for many reasons that I could record a whole other podcast with you on one day, is Ted Lasso. They actually have some very positive undertones of psychedelics. And I won't give away the final episode for those who haven't finished it, but there is a scene with a book in it. And if you look real closely at that book, it's How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, which is a phenomenal book. If anybody is into audiobooks, I highly recommend the audiobook version because Michael Pollan is, he's a research journalist and he investigative journalist and he narrates it and he's just got a such a great voice and such a gift for storytelling one of my favorites obviously but anyways i digress to my point which i already forgot what it was so <laughs> it was the stigma around ketamine thank you so you've got the psychedelic stigma right you got that association then you've got the scheduled substance stigma people a lot of times will hear scheduled substance and they automatically think like no it's it's basically heroin get it out of here you're not allowed to do it it's illegal it's like mm, no actually we need to look a little closer at it and then i would say at least in the pre-hospital world we've got ketamine being given i think personally i don't know that ketamine is being given very I don't want to say responsibly, that might be too harsh of a word, but there's more education that we could be doing in terms of how ketamine behaves in the body when we are delivering it to our patients for pain relief. And I'm not just talking, we've had some horrific events in the news where a patient is deemed to have a behavioral emergency uh, and they're inappropriately medicated with ketamine, and then they're given like 500 milligrams of ketamine. This happened with Elijah McLean, uh, tragically, and he wasn't the only one, right? So there is that associated stigma, and good reason to be to be investigative about it and scrutinize that, right? To to get to the to the basis of why uh, that occurred and what role ketamine had, if any, in that uh, demise. Which I would say at 500 milligrams for somebody as small as he was, it's pretty. I don't know, in my opinion, it had to have played a role, right? But I think even in the everyday delivery of ketamine, a lot of first responders who are not a fan of this drug, in terms of being a provider of it, um, are not a fan because of something referred to as emergence phenomenon. So a lot of times, which is so interesting. <laughs> okay, so let me back up a little bit. When we deliver ketamine, in the pre-hospital setting for pain, we're usually giving what's considered a sub-anesthetic dose, meaning we're not trying to snow them and make them incapacitated. We just want to literally cause some dissociation between mind and body to relieve pain without the use of narcotics. And once in a while in the pre-hospital setting, uh, and I should say under this umbrella of, of studying it and, and of, of discussion, a patient will have what is deemed to be emergence phenomenon where they start having hallucinations, they start being in distress, they start having these episodes that mimic psychosis temporarily while they're receiving the medication. And I have heard anecdotally and feedback from many providers who are like, I'll never give ketamine again. It scared the shit out of me. 
it scared the shit out of me because I didn't know what to do for my patient. Now, if they're receiving an IV infusion, you just shut it down. It's so fast. It'll shut down that effect very quickly. But if you deliver it IM or IN, you can't take it back. Now, what's ironic is in psychology, so shifting gears from pre-hospital to psychology, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen in the hospital either. I'm just going innately to where my experience is, right? So anywhere they give it for, for pain, if the patient has a, a loopy reaction to it, they call it emergence phenomenon. And then they give Versed. A lot of times there will be protocols for them to give Versed to counter that emergence phenomenon. In psychology, the hallucinations are the therapeutic effect. Whereas in medicine and emergency medicine, it's an adverse effect. It's undesired. It's something that they literally will mute with something else. But in psychology, the difference is they know how to expect it. They know how the drug behaves. They respect the fact that it's a dissociative analgesic, meaning some there's some train of thought that says, well, if your patient has emergence phenomenon, you did something wrong and you gave them too much medication. Whereas at the end of the day, ketamine is a dissociative analgesic at any dose. And yes, there is reason to believe that if you give too much or you give it too quickly, uh, it can cause some distress for that patient. But until we teach our providers how this medication behaves from a different lens and we teach them how to coach their patients and we teach them how to expect this, there's going to continue to be that associated negativity to it, is my opinion. And when it's given in this therapeutic container and it's given with the right intentions and the right set, the right setting with a safe space in mind, those hallucinations then become exploratory and they become a way to explore parts of our psyche that we don't have conscious access to when we're not under the influence and we don't have the assistance of this medication. But you see, if we're not telling our patients, hey, this might make you feel a certain way, and all of a sudden they feel themselves floating and they start feeling and seeing the faces of their providers change. Some of them have reported seeing people's faces melt off. Of course, it's going to scare the shit out of them. There is no less controlled, therapeutic, safe environment than in a pre-hospital scene where you give a patient ketamine. And here's the other thing I'll leave you with, too, is that ketamine Yes, it can cause hallucinations. That's the intended effect of it in psychology. There, But there's like seven or nine different types of hallucinations. It's not just visual. And that's another misconception I think that medicine has when it comes to delivering this medication. So they don't know what to expect it. When I hear people that have gone to, for example, Ibogaine and Ayahuasca, there's always a version of a shaman someone who is helping guide you through these visions and you know you think about mdma led research when i think about um when i lived in japan mushrooms were legal and so i had a lot of fun on those and then uh, uh ecstasy wasn't but we did it anyway and um you know i look back and, and all the walls come down you know all of a sudden you're friendly to everyone you're hugging everyone you're dancing and talking and um, which is funny because the love drug, you know, and that's illegal, but the alcohol where you smash the glass and shove it in someone's face is, you know, is fine, but you just can't take a drug that makes you hug and dance. Anyway, I digress. But, you know, you hear now on the MDMA lab therapy, 
that it allows you those same walls coming down as far as your anxiety in a social space like a rave the same thing is happening with some of the trauma that may have been boxed up and now it's open and if you're just getting an infusion left on your own i can see how yeah that could send you in a number of places so talk to me about the therapeutic element the counselor element to the ketamine that you're studying it's absolutely mandatory and that's the thing i think uh, there's there's a question of whether or not it's as effective when you're going at it alone. So there are different types of ketamine practices where you might have a very clinical setting where you just go into a room, you get set up on what looks like a you know big kind of half lounger chair that you would find in an urgent care and they just draw the curtain and they infuse you and you're off on your own. That by itself has been known to show improvements. Like it's been a therapeutic way to administer this medication, but there's, if, if we want to learn anything from the way that traditional ceremony and traditional psychedelics are regarded and held in this healing space with the guide of a shaman. And here's the thing about the shaman. They have personal experience with the medicine. You will be hard pressed to find someone who refers to themselves as a shaman that identifies as a shaman that is a shaman that is leading a psilocybin retreat or a psilocybin uh, ceremony that hasn't had extensive experience with it. So if you're looking for a ketamine facility, that is my number one question I would ask the person in charge that I'm you know, doing this intake with and this consult with is what is your experience with this medicine? Now you look at the other side of it briefly with medical providers, what is their experience with ketamine? Usually it's either a none or when they were younger and goofing off with it. And that's not, you know, that's not enough knowledge to know how to prepare. Sometimes it is though, uh, but in general to prepare their patient for what they're about to take on. And so I lost my train of thought again. I'm sorry. It's okay. So we were talking about the importance of having that counselor with you. So when boxes open, you have a guide to help you start processing what you're seeing. Very much so. Now, when our psyches tuck a traumatic experience away for later, a lot of times our psyches dissociate and hide that from us to protect us, right? And then given the right circumstances, it can start to become pathological. It can start actually affecting some conscious behaviors that we're not entirely sure where they're coming from or why we're being activated by a certain thing. And yes, the psychedelics in general, including the behavior of ketamine, will break down these walls and allow you to explore parts of your unconscious that you do not have access to in your waking state, which can allow for some of these things to come forward and be processed and be integrated and be worked through, but under the wrong conditions, it can cause, it can absolutely cause a psychotic break. And that's why you have to do it with a practitioner. You Just doing this alone, it, for those who can get a hold of some of these psychedelics on their own, doing this without someone who is experienced with it, doing it without someone who's who doesn't understand how this medication, this medicine is going to behave, and doing it with some, you know, going at it alone is just so high risk. I cannot discourage against that enough. And so, yes, I, I find that having a therapist, having a guide, having somebody to process that event with, whether it's during 
or immediately after, like let's say the next day, non-negotiable. It has to be done that way. Well, I think this is an important conversation for the people that are listening because a real aha moment I had and Jake Clark from Save a Warrior, I will attribute to really opening my eyes on this was the prevalence of childhood trauma in men and women in uniform. And when you oh. look at statistics and I haven't got them, you know, up my sleeve right now, but there is a very large percentage of people, um, you know, in first responders, in military professions, et cetera, that their ACEs score, their acute childhood, no, adverse childhood experience score um, is, you know, the, the top quartile, as it were, the worst side. So then you you have these people that are trying to figure out what's going on with mine. Oh, it must have been that fire that you had, Steve. And Steve's addressed that fire and nothing's working. He's done EMDR. He's done counseling. He's petted dogs and it's still not working. And now you try this and you unpack that thing that happened to you when you were six. And you didn't mm -hmm. even realize. I've, I got a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who has gone the psychedelic route and you know has, has struggled with with multiple areas and he just unpacked that he was molested by his grandfather when he was i think he said five so i mean that's so young that you can barely remember anything about being five so the thought of a responder going into that room and some you know huge awareness of that opening up with no one to guide you through i think with this audience specifically now understanding how many of us have things way before we ever put the uniform on to underline the importance of if you're going to go through this therapy, like you said, find someone who has tried it themselves and is well-versed in guiding people through. Correct. No, absolutely. And that's such a great point to bring up. And I don't have the statistics exactly, but I know I, I'm aware that this came from Sauce. So this is probably the, the individual, the gentleman that you just brought up, is that the average ACE score. Now, those of you who who are listening, who aren't familiar with ACE adverse childhood experiences. This was a study that was done, if I remember correctly, in partnership with Kaiser and the CDC. And they did this massive study. I want to say it was like over 60,000 participants, which is huge. Okay. Like there's just, you are just saturated to the max when it comes to having that many people as part of your end group. And they basically studied how many of these people under the age of 18, which I would argue that under the age of seven to eight is even more influential in a negative way uh, because of the way our brain waves are working and how, like they say, kids are sponges. They're sponges because they lack that filtration that 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 can discern uh, from certain experiences. So I, I find personally from my from what I understand about it, that I would think that even younger than eight years old could be more detrimental than let's say 16. Nonetheless, 18 is still a pretty significant uh, cutoff. They basically looked at uh, 10 different adverse experiences that included things like a immediate caregiver being incarcerated, immediate caregiver being um, uh, dying, let's say, um, had any type of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Maybe they didn't have their needs met, like food on the table. So all these things. And they said, okay, on average, most people have like one to two maybe. But they found that people with a higher ACE score, so anything above two is considered high, four is extremely high. It increased their risk. And I'm, I'm summarizing this very loosely, so I apologize in advance. But they found that 
those who had higher ACE scores, so higher occurrences of adverse childhood experiences, also had higher occurrences of things like cardiovascular disease, hypertension, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, uh, suicide, cancer. Like it's one of the only studies that exists that shows undeniable proof of the mind-body connection. Like they're not just saying it's causing physical ailments, it's causing mental health ailments as well. And I found that to be really remarkable, especially coming from those two entities. The problem with that study is there's really not, not to my knowledge, there's not been really a whole lot of follow-up to show, well, how do we reverse that? What do we do with that then? Because identifying that someone's high risk of hypertension and then putting them on beta blockers doesn't make, it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm finding that at least pharmaceutically you can intervene with symptoms, but you can't really reverse the dysfunction unless you really get to the core level. And this is the whole idea behind healing the inner child. I hate that term. I don't know why I hate that term. <laughs> Maybe I'll find out in my psychedelic exploration, but I, but that's essentially what it is because we have the ability to go back and take care of ourselves the way that let's say society or our families or our caregivers were unable to, or didn't when we were that age. And I think that's important to bring up. And going back to the the point that uh, the Saw gentleman, what's his name again? Uh, Jake Clark. Yes. Uh, so I heard this from somebody who who went to Saw that the average score of first responders, at least the people that had come to Saw, were like seven and greater. That's a very similar statistic to those who are incarcerated. Well, what's also crazy, just to jump in for two seconds, Jake said that the first time they go in, they take it, and I think it's probably a, the, the lower number, I'm sure seven is, is probably the, the second time, but they go in and then they do the work and they take another ACEs assessment at the end and they're even more aware of actually the things that contributed. And so again, like you said, that child within, if we're not, not only, you know, we, we just checkbox to eliminate responders at the front door. We don't think, well, what what made this person such a great firefighter has a positive and a negative. Let's offer some sort of you know mental health program from day one so that this person, this human being, can actually start unpacking what they did prior and turn that into a strength and formulate an amazing relationship with a counselor right off the bat. Yes, I completely agree. I have a friend, um, I know you've interviewed him, Ben Vernon. Love the guy. Uh, so grateful that our paths crossed. He and I have this ambition to want to research ACEs. Like what I've done a, a general survey um, across my my community, but you could argue that I mean it's just a survey. It's not an actual study. But we've wanted to find out like what is the actual occurrence because even though so he collected this data from his saw participants, but there hasn't actually been any like published data. And the other half of that, which has us kind of putting maybe my, myself more than him, putting our foot on the brake is like, okay, but what kind of Pandora's box is that open? Could that be weaponized, right? By the wrong people? Or do we just say, and here's another thing before I get too far off track, how much of that dysfunction creates the functional first responder? How much of that, like if we were to say, okay, let's not hire any 
paramedics or any firefighters or any police officers that have an ACE score above two, you would have nobody signing up. I'd put money on that. You'd have nobody signing up. And then the people you do have sign up, I don't know. There's got to be something that we learned from those horrible experiences that made us more capable of doing this job. I'm not saying to wear it like a badge of honor. I'm just curious. Again, I'm just asking the questions I don't have the answers to. How much of that creates a functional first responder? And then, you know, obviously we need to go back and and heal some of that, right? Because I want to give you some statistics that I just pulled up. So an ACE score of four more. So we talked about seven was the average, right? An ACE score of four or more puts an individual at high risk for toxic stress and increases their chances of suicide by 1,200%. 1,200? 1,200%. Risk of depression increases by 460% with an ACE score of four or more. Having an ACE score of four or higher makes someone seven times more likely to struggle with alcoholism. And an ACE score of four or more nearly doubles the risk of heart disease and cancer. Like it just, if you've never looked into ACEs, uh, the work by Gaber Mate is phenomenal as well. He he gets into it quite a bit, but it's uh, it's very eye-opening. So to parallel that conversation, something I've spoken about a lot, because I really dove into the hiring process because I've worked for four full-time departments and I have volunteered here for, I mean, a heartbeat, but I went through a process again. But I got the kind of east-west perspective, and most I think most firefighters will never do four full, you know, hiring process orientation, etc. Um, and then you know you you kind of go down this road. And I told the story before. The very first place I ever put a pre-app in was Miami Beach, and I was super honest about things that I touched on a minute ago in Japan that were years prior to you know when I was testing. And they literally kind of screw it up and threw it in my face. I mean, I'm like, not metaphorically, like literally. And I'm like, well, fuck. So I have to lie to be a firefighter. Okay, got it. So you look at the, the you know, the, the hiring standards. I would argue that it's most of your good candidates, let's put it that way, without going black and white, are going to have elements of trauma. Now, some of them have already addressed them and they've become strengths. Some of them may be lurking, you know, beneath. And that's something that we need to talk about as well. But the idea that you're going to have someone who's really done nothing wrong or had any kind of extreme experience when they were younger is going to be an incredible police officer running towards bullets or a firefighter running into a burning building. I think you're deluding yourself. So, yes, there are certain things that people have done in their past where absolutely you can't wear the uniform, you know, children, that kind of thing. Sure. But some of these quote unquote crimes, like they were caught with marijuana, now they've got a, you know, a freaking criminal record when now, you know, you can go into a dispensary in some states and buy it is lunacy. So I think when we acknowledge the childhood trauma, not only can we make a huge dent in the mental health conversation, because it's, you know, that and sleep deprivation, the two things that are, and then organizational betrayal. So the three things that are really not in the discussions of the general you know, first responder communities. So you're you're talking about that. You're, you're setting the same, you know, we do PT on the drill ground where you have counseling sessions. You make it, you know, mind and body. You create it as a positive thing. So you give the ability to turn what would be, you know, a trauma into a strength. But then also you review your disqualifiers and ask yourself, are we missing a large portion of people because you know 10 years prior they did this thing that actually isn't even that bad 
you know so just kind of taking a step back and looking at that like well of course you know sandra was was stealing she was as you said her parents weren't even feeding her at home and she got caught shoplifting you know what i mean so i think those two are completely interrelated as well I agree. And I think that there just has to be a broader discussion and a broader understanding of it. Um, is this person currently struggling with substance abuse? Are we going to, are, are we, are we really written off as being worthy of wearing a uniform because a younger version of ourselves found comfort and coping with a harmful substance that was illegal at the time, right? In fact, Gabramante believes that there is no, uh, that um, the gateway to addiction is trauma. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, Johan Hari, Chasing the Scream, the opposite of addiction is connection, not sobriety. Yeah, and so another thing I wanted to bring up was that you, okay. So ACEs are part of it. You brought up uh, administrative betrayal. You brought up moral injury. Moral injury did get brought up in my, in my uh, study as well. in my, my research findings, but something I forgot to bring up because I, I talk about the shadow of the fire service. So there's, there's this persona that we have with these uh, very strong and capable men and women, usually very good looking and capable of being on like, you know, this firefighter uh, calendar and they wear this badge and they're, they're strong and they're fit. And in reality, it's like, okay, that's the persona. That's the persona we want to show the world, but what's the shadow aspect of it? What's our organizational shadow and our individual shadow that isn't being looked at. And one of them, I believe is moral injury among several other things that I talk about, but one I forgot to bring up, was um, incivility and the way that we treat one another. And I, I firmly believe that our trauma comes from three things. One of them is it's we we're we come preloaded with it. And this is your uh, ACE scores. And it's also an epigenetics that I'm going to talk about in a second because I don't want to forget to. The second is uh, the calls that we run. It's inevitable. There's only so much carnage you can expose yourself and the context and the suffering, especially when there's a story attached to it and a story you identify with, it'll really seep into your psyche because now you put yourself in that person's place or you put yourself in that survivor's place. So let's say you run on a, uh, maybe you've run a ton of pediatric drownings, but this one, uh, the kid is blonde like your kid, is three years old like your kid, and you are in a home that looks like yours. And now you see yourself as losing that kid. It's just a different association. And then the third one, I think, is the trauma we cause towards each other, the abuse. It's literally abuse. It's not just, it's it's beyond workplace harassment. It is just absolutely targeted incivility, dehumanizing behavior. And this idea gets wrapped up with, well, hurt people, hurt people. It doesn't make it an excuse, but it does make it a, you know, a reason behind it. And, and it needs to be addressed. Problem is the people that are meant to lead us and to guide us are often the ones that are causing the abuse internally. Yeah, I agree. And this is what I've heard. You know, a lot of the, the the revered figures in the fire service, you interview them and you find out maybe it's before you hit record that, you know, the, the profit's not received in their own land. You know, a lot of them struggle in their own department to be, you know, this this kind of, um, you know, forging the path. But everyone else outside is going, wow, that person's amazing, you know. And so and I saw it myself. The reason one of the reasons why I transitioned out was I saw just a, a complete lack of camaraderie, brotherhood, sisterhood, culture in my last place. And we lost one of my classmates, you know, and it was to a mental health crisis. It was a, you know, overdose. 
and the lack of compassion that I witness as a compassionate, um, you know, passionate person, it crushed me. And that switch went off. And then for the next, well, I think it was like three plus years, I was trying to find some semblance of, you know, trying to, to build and, and form it. And just, that I could never get away from that. I'm like, how, how you could be so cold of, I mean, it's a four station fire department. It was someone that you lost. Um, yeah, it was, it was, so that was it. It was organizational for me a hundred percent. Like, you know, there's a lot of people in that department that really are trying to do good things. And it's not even swimming upstream. Like you're trying to climb Niagara Falls, you know, and so you're just told to sit down and shut up. And um, yeah, and I think that's some reason I'm telling that story. I think there's a lot of passionate responders in organizations that wake up, leave, leave their family for 12, 24, 48 hours with service burning in their heart. And they are just absolutely shit on when they get to work. And that is inexcusable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think until we bring light to that, it it will just, it's already generated its own pulse and it just gets stronger. Um, and that's the point of exposing and facing that shadow so that it can uh, be addressed and be worked on. So the other part I was going to mention, which I brought up with epigenetics, is it's not just our childhood experiences, but it's the experiences we literally inherit in our DNA from our parents. And this part, I actually thought it was, uh, I dismissed it the first time I heard about it. I thought it was, and I'm being very vulnerably honest when I say this, but the first time I heard about the idea that people who were descendants of survivors of genocide or survivors of just some of the sickest things that we can imagine in our history, the Holocaust, I thought, Okay, like you're not going to tell me that somebody who is the great great granddaughter of somebody who survived the Holocaust is affecting is is experiencing anything that their grandparent great grandparent did. And again, I say this as mindfully as possible that I just I didn't see how that could be connected. Right? I was trying to, but it it wasn't one of those things that I think that's okay when you're presented with an idea. Have some resistance, have some questions, dig deeper until you find the language that clicks for you, right? Or you discern whether or not this is legitimately true. So I go looking into it and it turns out that it's not just the experiences that we have from birth to eight years old that has a significant imprint on our psyches, but it's also in our third trimester, in vitro. We start experiencing traumatic events in vitro. So anything your mother experienced from third trimester on left an imprint on your psyche. So if she was in a car accident, if she was in an abusive relationship, if she had a significant death or suffering, that is going to be passed on to her child. Now, think about the fact, and this has been proven in rodent studies, because with mice in particular, they, their offspring are very quick. So what they did was there was a study of some sort where they basically took a group of a control group. And every time that it's very traumatic, honestly, to think about if you're an animal lover, but every time this uh, mouse ate something or they, they baited it with something, it was probably food or water, uh, it would shock them. And, or they would, they would do some sort of stimulus. I'm not remembering it exactly at this time, but they would do some sort of stimulus that would cause pain to them. And then they reproduce them and reproduce them and reproduce them. And I want to say it was either three or four generations before that trigger was eliminated from their DNA. 
So even though they conditioned first generation here, the control group, to have this adverse experience associated with something, it literally affected the following three generations to the point where they avoided it, even though they had no conscious awareness, they had no exposure directly to that adversity. And the way it was described to me or the way that made me click is that when we were in, I'm sorry, when our mothers were in our grandmother's womb, she not only produced a child, created a child in her womb, she produced the eggs that would one day create you. So anything that that grandmother experienced while she was pregnant with your mother who carried the eggs that would one day create you are now imprinted onto your DNA. See, that makes sense now, the way you've described it. Exactly, right? Like the first time I heard it, I was like, mm, you know, because my family's, you know, I'm a survivor of civil war. My father's Lebanese. Like my mother grew up in extreme poverty. So when someone told me that there might be a chance, and granted, this is not, I'm not at all comparing this to the Holocaust, but that's the extreme example that was given to me. I thought, okay, just because my mom grew up with this abusive, you know, this, this condition, just because my dad, you know, lived in war his whole life, that doesn't mean I'm affected by that. That didn't happen to me. And then, you know, you get into the actual, like, I guess the physiology of it. I had to step out of psychology for a second and, and find the, the pathophys explanation. And then it clicked. Well, I mean, even if you look at medicine today, like, you know, when we, I'd say we, I'm a little bit older than you, but, you know, when I was young, because I've been in science for pretty much my, my whole life, not in science, but, but I, I wanted to be a doctor originally when I was young until I got to kind of uh, college level and I realized I didn't have the academic capacity to be a doctor. So I became a paramedic, which was much more cool. But, um, you know, so I've, I've been told for a long time, like, you know, when you, when you destroy a brain cell, that's it. It's never coming back, you know, and now we realize, okay, there is genesis again there. And the same with DNA. Oh, DNA is a set blueprint and it's, you know, it's indelible. And now we're realizing, wow, if you change your environment, you can actually change your DNA. So then you extrapolate that to generations, especially the way you described it. Absolutely. If, if there's, if there's a, a mother who's experiencing fear and there's a, there's a third trimester baby who's got the capacity to move and hiccup and everything, well, they're going to feel if they're vulnerable or not. And then that's also being projected into their entire physiology as well. Yes, absolutely. And then you take that concept and you apply it to what it might look like. It, let's say the fire service. How many generational firefighters do you know? Oh, quite a few. It's obviously a, a big thing in our profession. Huge, right? Look at, there was a, a what was what year was it? Was it the 20th anniversary? This was 2021 of 9-11. They had like 60 some sworn in active duty firefighters that were on duty, working some in the same house, wearing the same badge as their fathers who died before them. Hello. Like, I mean, it's just, you know, granted, it, it's just, it's just crazy to me. Like, it's crazy to think, okay, not just 9-11, not the, not just the experience of 9-11, but what everyday experiences or what adverse childhood experiences were they exposed to that their parent was exposed to. There's one family in, I don't know what part of the country, but there's like a hundred years worth of generations of firefighters in that family. 
I would, I mean, that would just be unpacking a whole lot to like look into that and go, okay, not just your adverse child experience, but your, your epigenetics. So if you're interested in what this, this lineage thing, it's, it comes back to epigenetics and there's still a whole lot to learn about it. So don't, you know, take everything as fact. It's going to be continuously involving, I think. But here's the other side of the conversation that nobody brings up because it's very sensationalized to be able to talk about that other stuff. And all the statistics I gave you with ACEs is that you can't heal that inner child. You can't heal that part of your psyche. You can't heal those unconscious aspects that you don't necessarily have conscious access to. Because, right, our, our conscious brains are what, like anywhere between five to 8%. I mean, even that is just guesstimated based on the way that we take in data from our five you know, senses and the way it's filtered through our reticular activating system and all that. But there is a way to heal that. And there's various ways to go about it. And psychedelics are just one tool. Just one of them. But it's a, if I may so, so myself, personally, I think it's a damn effective one. Well, with that, it's a great segue to what I wanted to kind of lead us to back to the ketamine. As you started diving into that particular substance, what uh, you, you mentioned about there being almost no research when it came, especially to the fire service. What were you seeing in general as far as people that had some sort of mental health challenge and the the success they were finding with ketamine-led counseling? So in the short term, almost every study I've come across has found a benefit in a general benefit in the groups that are that are participating in, in getting the active substance that are not getting the the and even some of them with the placebo, to be honest with you. So there's something to be said about the placebo effect is still in effect, right? Um, in general, these 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 substances, these medicines are having great response for a variety of ailments. We're talking OCD, we're talking addiction, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideations, PTSD, right? Way more. <laughs> effectiveness than our pharmaceutical counterparts and SSRIs. And I'm not saying anything bad about taking antidepressants. I was on them for at least a year, maybe even two years. And I needed them at that time. And they worked for me at that time. But in general, they have a very low long-term success rate. Now, what the long-term success is of these uh, substances is still yet to be determined. We don't know. Like some people, it'll only take it's not one of those things. It's not a magic pill. And I, it's such so cliche to say that, but it's not one of those things. You're going to go to one ayahuasca ceremony. You're going to come out a completely healed person. No, it's chipping away. You wouldn't work out once and expect to be, you know, fit for an Ironman, right? It, this is life. This is your whole life encapsulated in this. And the generations, your ancestors that came before you, literally you're being the one to break this generational pattern and to work on yourself and to ask and explore things that our ancestors didn't either have access to or they didn't have the luxury of doing because they were so caught up in whatever it was that was keeping them from it, right? And so when it came to ketamine, my my purpose or my thought process behind exploring ketamine specifically was its legal medical accessibility, right? That was the biggest one. It was a schedule three. It even though it came with its own degree of stigma, I believe, and this is just my perspective and my limited opinion, limited perspective in my opinion, is that it had less of a stigma because it was a Schedule 3, had more accessibility because it was a Schedule 3, and I thought it would be a, an appropriate icebreaker to bring up psychedelic therapy 
for the fire service, because even though the other psychedelics, for the most part, there are some small exceptions, for the most part, are illegal and not accessible in the United States, I find that with decriminalization bills being handed out left and right in all states, red and blue, the conversation's coming. It's not a matter of if, but when more and more of these options are not only available, but legally available to our uniform personnel. Well, you talked about looking for firefighters that actually had tried ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, You kind of hit a wall as far as not really to find enough candidates, at least to fit the end number. Talk to me about how you shifted to the union side and then kind of walk me through, you know, your your actual study and then the findings. Right. So I had reached out to quite a few. I want to say I reached out to almost 50 union leaders and I had eight that responded and were gracious enough to give me their time for an interview. And these were leadership, union leadership throughout the state. And I I, I intentionally wanted to speak to union leaders and not necessarily chiefs and admin higher-ups because the union as a a general sense, they are representing the body, right? And so I felt like what better way to gain some collective thought processes or conversations than with union presidents. And that's another thing that I I'm so careful about how I present this and I'm still kind of learning my flow when it comes to embodying it and going from student and researcher to subject matter expert on it, because this was very much a collaborative experience. This was a collaborative effort. This wasn't just me writing it. It was me writing it with eight union leaders that were representing over 12,000 firefighters in the state, right? That's how I look at it. And so I never want to misrepresent them. I want to be very careful with it because what I intended when intersecting these two things, like we knew firefighters have PTSD and co-occurring conditions, right? We knew that ketamine, there's plenty of research that shows that ketamine is an effective option for all these co-occurring conditions, but I'd never seen these two topics intersect like I had the great fortune of doing in this dissertation. And what I wanted to do was hopefully start the discussion, plant the seed and explore where does this fit? Because right now ketamine is a legal option for firefighters. And what I found as a result, it was very clear after the first couple of interviews, why I couldn't find any firefighters who had already done ketamine. I'm not saying they didn't exist. It's just within my limited reach and network, I couldn't find them. And what I found was that there's very little awareness across the board of one that this is that ketamine can be used for psych for psychology, psych therapy, um, that it was legal and accessible and that people were already, you know, doing it. There was a very limited awareness of it. Some of them had heard about it, but I'm very impressed. I was able to write as much as I was on a topic that they had very little knowledge of. And this is in California, which you think would be a little bit more progressive when it came to that as well. Which just gives me a pretty good index on just how far behind some other states and areas might be. And that's actually why, I mean, I picked California because uh, that's where I did most of my time uh, working in the field. And there was a difference. Like the first person I interviewed, 
I was super stiff and I was like, I had my questions and I asked my questions and I didn't deviate from the questions. I didn't introduce myself. Like, I mean, he didn't know who I was and the interview lasted like 16 minutes. And I thought, oh shit, this is not good. Cause I was expecting like hour and a half interviews or something that would give me a substantial amount of data to then extract themes from and determine, okay, what did all of them say? Or what did most of them say that I can, you know, generalize and, and present as my findings. And then my second interviewee, my second participant had also had no idea who I was. In fact, both of those, both of those interviews opened up with like, uh, how did you find me? And I was like, I don't know. I just Googled, you know, different union presidents or directors and anybody who had a public address uh, email address was fair game per my ethics committee to reach out to them directly. I couldn't do that when it was an individual who had actually had PTSD and undergone the therapy. Ethics-wise, I wasn't allowed to do that. So this gave me a, a broader reach. I could do the legwork on it. I didn't have to wait for them to come to me. And the second one, I told them about myself. I told them who I worked for. I told them I'm an EMS coordinator for a fire department in Southern California. I told them my, my background, my experience. I told them I was still a licensed paramedic. I'm a CE educator, that kind of stuff, and unlocked it. We were on the line for like an hour and a half, and he told me so much. So again, I picked California not only for its pro- more progressive nature compared to some other states, and and thinking that that would be you know open, but also because I think that they were more willing to open up to me when they found out I had some common ground. I wasn't just some random PhD student, right? Yeah, and I think that that buy-in, I mean, whether it's someone coming to try and do research or whether it's someone coming in to train us in physical fitness, you know, if you don't know what we do, as you know, whether you're a trainer or a counselor, you've got a pretty slim chance of actually getting people to to, to listen. And it's, it's because we've been burned so many times. I mean, the number of horror stories I've heard from EAP, Russian roulette, you know, counselors from people that are, you know, getting pretty close to crisis and then the counselors in tears or they tell them to get out of their office they can't help them you know i mean this is the this is why i think to to defend that kind of uh mentality in our profession is because you really have to understand what we do we're such a small percentage of the population and this is why i wish there were more voices in the fire service that could tell the public like hey this is what we see this is what we do because you know for everyone else like oh why is there a fire engine on my medical call like, this is 2023, motherfucker. What, 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 how are we still asking that then? But this is the problem. So I can totally understand why when you say I'm a paramedic and I'm, I'm a head of EMS. Okay. Now, now you've got my attention. Talk to me. Yeah. And I had called my advisor after that first interview, which I was still gracious for. I actually got a lot of really good data out of that 16 minutes, but I called my advisor and I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm not going to have a dissertation to write. And she was like, you can deviate from the questions. I was like, I can? She's like, yes. And she encouraged me. She's like, let yourself come into the room a little bit. Like that's kind of, uh, it's very interesting how much, and, and if anybody's ever had a therapist that was very guarded and didn't let them know anything about them and a therapist that just let, a, like still kept boundaries and still kept healthy boundaries, but let a little bit of themselves open up, it completely changes the dynamic of that patient therapist relationship. And you see that again, also in Ted Lasso, I'm not going to give it away, but in the second season, you see that dynamic flourish between one of the cast members, one of the main characters and the staff therapist that's on site. It's so palpable. And that's exactly what I think occurred here. And so in general, most of them weren't aware of it. And most of them were hundred percent on board for it. 
some of them with condition, obviously they were like, well, we want to make sure that it's not going to be abused. We want to make sure that people aren't doing it for their own reasons. We want to make sure it's being done in a therapeutic container, like all the things that are innate already to ketamine assisted psychotherapy, but very important to bring up and reemphasize nonetheless. And some of them were like, I'm a yes. I mean, one guy flat out said, if there is something that is available and is an option that would prevent my department from going through another suicide, I am a hundred percent a yes. And that was outstanding. So then you, you're, you're doing all these interviews, kind of walk me through the conclusion. Like, you know, as, as you are realizing that there's firstly not a large group that you're even getting a response from, which probably ties into the stigma as well. You found out a lot of these people weren't at least initially aware of it. Now they're learning. Now they're seeing the results. Kind of what were the takeaways from the study? So for the ketamine, like I said, it was being kind of for some of them, it was being introduced to them, right, for the first time. And they were still like, I mean, yes, but here was the thing is we identified that there was a lack of awareness. That was a, a limitation. And we identified that bridging accessibility would require an extensive educational component. So meaning you roll out for not just education, but maybe re-education on it so that you can combat kind of the stigma and to really show like, this isn't just a bunch of people just going and getting high and dancing in circles and, you know, whatever. It's like, no, there's rigorous research and scientific study that shows that this is a therapeutic option. Granted, there's limitations. It's not for everybody. Red flag if the person you're doing a concert will can't tell you who they would say is not a candidate for this treatment. But I believe, I believe in body autonomy. And I believe that, I don't believe that everybody needs psychedelics. I don't believe everybody will benefit from psychedelics. But I do believe that everybody has the right to decide with their practitioners and with their clinicians, whether or not this is something that potentially could be beneficial to them. And, you know, one of an easy, you know, stigma association, one of the, one of the gentlemen that I interviewed had a member of his fire department that got accepted to a study. It was a ketamine study for PTSD at a prestigious university. And for whatever reason, I didn't find out why uh, he didn't know why he had gone to his department to ask permission if he could be a part of this study because he believed, you know, it was a controlled substance. He needed to ask permission for it. And they said no. Because they thought, well, that's not legal. It's like he could go around the corner and pay 600 bucks and do it himself. But he literally had this free opportunity to be part of a, you know, study to get this treatment. And they told him no. And so there, there's a need for education. There's a need for an understanding. And I believe that a lot of times stigma grows in the shadows. And when we bring it out into the light and we can have an honest discussion and, and have a discussion about what are the limitations, what are the strengths of it? What don't we know? I will never sell this as a miracle drug that's going to cure everybody and that we know everything there is to know about it and everybody's going to be fine if they do it. Absolutely not. That's, that's very naive to think. And so one of the other things that I thought was really interesting because I didn't ask it flat out. So that was another reason I picked ketamine. I could have easily asked, I don't know that I would have had as big of a response, but I could have easily asked about other psychedelics. Like you said, there's been plenty of discussion about Ibogaine and ayahuasca and psilocybin and all that, but I felt like it would be ethically compromising to ask uniform personnel to have an open discussion about substances that were still very much illegal. However, many of them brought it up on their own. 
because it's it's an awareness piece. I mean, you know, you talked about Joe and Huberman. Um, Tim Ferriss is another one that's spoken about this for a long time. And I've had numerous conversations with people that, you know, were literally at ready to take their own lives and went to, you know, some sort of journey, psychedelic journey. And again, it wasn't like a, I'm fixed now, but they were starting to unpack it. And then there's the post, um, you know, post psychedelic counseling that they do to start unpacking it more and more and more and more. So I think to, to use a firefighter analogy, it's like going to an extrication and you're just given a hacksaw. Okay. Well, his, his, you know, um, psychiatric drugs, there you go. And now what you're starting to see is EMDR and, you know, equine therapy and diving and surfing and all these other things. And then you add in psychedelics and, and, you know, especially in an environment where certain ones are still illegal. Okay. Well, now we've got ketamine. And then if you can get into a study, MDMA lab therapy is amazing, which ironically was the, the drug I used to dance to in Japan. And then, you know, psych, uh, psilocybin was in the mushrooms. And I asked myself now, did that actually help? My recreational time back then, did that help me process some of the stuff when I was younger? Who knows? But now you've got an entire toolbox of spreaders and, and shears and, you know, crowbars and all kind of pry bars and airbags. So now you can go, what is the right tool for this job? All right, now I lifted the car up. Now I need to cut. Okay, so I use this tool first and now I'm going to shift to another tool. So maybe you start with you know, something a little bit more gentle and then you open up and go, oh God, I think maybe there are some things stuck in there because we just can't seem to get to elements of my childhood. Now I think I'm ready to try ketamine. So I think having that toolbox, having these conversations rather than saying, oh, I need to find the one thing that works for me. It's the spectrum of tools that I think is the most important part of this conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a really good point too, because my favoritism or my my tendency to favor ketamine for first responders is the fact that in, in, innately right now, it is a legally available substance under medical guidance and application. And one of the most important things across the board for all psychedelic use is safety. And so while the general population might go, well, uh, and I don't disagree with this, but they might go, well, I prefer psilocybin because it's it's from the earth right it's organic it's from the earth i i just trust something that's that's uh made from mother nature rather than man-made i don't disagree with that but the safety element is this is that someone who goes out to joshua tree or the desert and does psilocybin with their buddies even in a therapeutic container is in the back of their mind going could i lose my job for this will i get popped for a drug test will it show up whether or not they test for it is irrelevant. You get popped for a random drug test, you're freaking out even if you're completely stone sober, right? And yet you don't have that element of, of uh, risk of safety when you go to a doctor or you go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and you get legitimately and legally prescribed this medication for your mental healing. It's no different than you going to the doctor and saying, I'm having this, this, that issue. They go ahead and run some labs, go, your testosterone's shit. Let me go ahead and give you a, medic, a prescription for it, right? And so for me, I think that that's what makes it a little bit more, um, I guess I should say, I favor it for that reason, right? And at least with the IV infusions, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the IM injections or the lozenges. Those are other forms of ketamine that are very popular. But for the IV infusions, if let's say you have a, a very bad trip or a very adverse reaction to it that your 
clinician or your guide or whoever it is that's overseeing this infusion can't walk you out of, you shut down the drip. You can't reverse ingesting DMT or ayahuasca in a tea. You can't reverse ingesting psilocybin that you ate the the truffles and the mushrooms, right? So I find that to be a great first step towards exploring psychedelics. I am in my early stages of my own journey with psychedelics and I'm starting with uh, ketamine and ketamine is the only one that I'll, that I will feel comfortable openly discussing because I never want to encourage someone to explore things that could potentially get them in trouble or put them in a bad situation or that isn't done responsibly in, like I said, in a therapeutic container in a medical setting. But for me, the last thing I would do is sign up for an ayahuasca retreat in Costa Rica and go sign up for it and travel around the world to go do this thing that it's very intense. Now, I'm not saying not to do it. I'm not saying that there isn't benefit to doing it in these, these retreats. But personally, that was not the way I was going to do it. I didn't want to be that far from home. I didn't want to be, it's just, there were too many conditions that that would not have been conducive for my healing process. So if someone's having a hesitation with a certain drug, that's number one, not for you. Like I have a, you know, it's just, no, like if you're not mentally in the space to surrender yourself to the medicine and whatever comes up under the guidance of a shaman or guidance of a healer or guidance of a clinician, then it's, then you're not, you're already in the wrong headspace for it. Well, I was going to ask you about that next. So you already kind of brought this in. So another layer to this whole thing, you did this kind of academic study, and now you actually began your own journey, obviously very well educated by this point into ketamine. You talked about being on SSRIs for one or two years. Um, I just had a, a family member try them for a very short time, had a huge adverse effect on SSRIs. Um, and ultimately, it was all the other kind of holistic stuff that's kind of got them back now. What have you found in the short time that you've done so far? What you know? What would be your observations or, or kind of aha moments of this versus all the other therapies that you've tried up to that point? So I find that it's not that all the other therapies didn't work. I've been on my own awakening journey and realizing that I needed to go inward for a lot of just stuff. Let's just put it that way. My ACE score is very high. I don't get too specific as to what it is, but let's just say it's, it's on the higher end of that 10. And I both, I both think, and I believe, or I'm sorry, my clinicians I've worked with that do have an explicit understanding of what my upbringing was and what my history is know that I've compensated very well considering. I mean, the statistics should be, you know, a lot different for me. And I I do firmly believe that adverse childhood experiences is why every woman in my family has had breast cancer. Like, I mean, it's just, to me, there's no doubt. So that all said, I have been in therapy. I've done, I dabbled with EMDR for a little bit, wasn't able to find a clinician when I relocated. I've done meditation. I've done yoga. I've done mobility, somatic work acupuncture. I've done all these things. And I would never say that none of them worked. I believe that they kept me going on this path. Like it's not something that it, and that's another thing too. You'll, you'll hear this. They'll be like, well, you know, all you need is six sessions and you'll be good after that. No, you'll be great, but you won't necessarily be done. 
that might just be the beginning, right? Don't get so attached to, it's just going to take one ayahuasca ceremony. It's just going to take a couple of mushroom trips or six sessions with ketamine. It's going, that, that might just be the foundation of greater exploration. And so all of those things combined laid extremely great uh, foundation for me to build on when I was ready to explore with ketamine. And for me, I've been a candidate for, for a while, but being that I was already as biased as I was going into my research, I made a conscious decision to abstain until I was done. And what I didn't know would happen is the last few months of my dissertation clock and those last few months of being a student absolutely fried my nervous system and my psyche. And my while my depression, I did have a depressive episode in January that didn't last as long as the ones I've had prior to that. Uh, my anxiety was just off the charts. And I've only had to this date, uh, and I plan on having a couple more coming up, but I've only had two ketamine sessions and my my boyfriend can, I mean, he sees a huge night and day difference in my just everyday demeanor. And the things that would just make me melt down, the things that would irritate me or the things that would completely affect my day have all but, they've quieted down is the best way to put it. Like they still happen, but my reaction is a little bit more stable. Correct me if I'm wrong. I just flash back. I mean, we, like we said, we did our conversation pretty much three years ago now. Um, your grandmother, you mentioned about, um, you know, being from the Middle East originally. Wasn't it her who was attacked with an axe or a knife and left for dead? Have I got that right? Or is that one of my other guests? That was another guest. Okay. All right. So, because I'm, I'm just going to tie into the epigenetics. Okay. I can't remember who yeah. that was now, but yeah, I've heard some pretty horrific stories. of, And my, the book I'm writing now is actually going to dip into that multi-generational trauma because this is another part of the conversation. You know, you hear this a lot with the kind of looking down your nose at kids today. Oh, if parents just did that. Well, yeah, but are the parents there? You know, or yeah. are they dead or in prison or just decided to pack up, you know, when they're five years old, like my ex is... Uh, sperm donor did and, and just fuck off and start a new family you know how does that set up a little girl to become a fully functional you know woman so yeah but obviously that wasn't your origin story but again that epigenetics that's carrying through and you know you've got the dna side but you've also just got the anxiety depression the expression of that trauma that that child is born into and then lives an entire life th lifetime through and then passes on to their child yeah yeah, absolutely. And so it's just one of those things that I feel like, uh, so one of the, one of the theorized mechanisms of action of ketamine is its ability to quiet the, the, um, oh God, what is it called? The DMN network. So it's the, um, default mode network in the brain. And what they found was that the default mode network is made up of multiple areas of the brain. And when there's a hyperactivity of it, it's usually associated with an increased amount of um, like rumination, maladaptive rumination, uh, basically where you have these negative thoughts and you relive these experiences in your head over and, and you know, like you have a bad experience happen with somebody at work and you just can't stop replaying it in your head and it just perpetuates and makes it worse. That's maladaptive rum rumination. And what ketamine uh among a couple of other mechanisms it has one of it, it what it'll do is it it quiets it. it turns the volume down and so for me the way i described it is when under an infusion 
I felt like it was a chemically induced meditative state. Now, a misconception with meditation is that you have to be quiet. I was still chatterboxing. I was still doing the stuff. I was still exploring. Um, I cried a lot my first session, a lot. And no session is like, like you don't have to go into it and like expect something to happen. You just have to go into it open-minded to whatever happens, happens kind of thing. And I resisted the drug a lot. I resisted it and kept wanting to control where it went and, and waiting for certain things to happen. And so I've got more time to spend with it. But point I was getting at basically is that I felt like a lot of things quieted down, especially um, I, I had considerably high amount of intrusive thoughts and intrusive thoughts that I would then just, I, I call it maladaptive daydreaming. I will just construct these whole creative stories in my head and like, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And I mean, I would, it, I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but I would get to the point where I would fabricate these daydreams in my head that would leave me in tears and so upset over something that didn't even happen. But I just took one little download and just followed it down this rabbit trail and all of a sudden my day was fucked. I haven't had that happen since. Now I've had these little ideas pop up, these little like, you know, little indicators like oh, that I would have easily followed down a trail. And my uh, old, my former therapist from 2016, I ran into her at the conference and she's a academy practitioner now. And I was trying to explain this to her and she goes, it's like your thought, those intrusive thoughts are sticking like Teflon instead of Velcro. And that was absolutely the best way to describe it. I had a, a very low episode, probably the, the deepest depression I've had. It's not, I've never really been super low or super high. You know, I had that depression, anxiety, I'd never really been too extreme in my life specifically and i've had some you know some huge lows as far as you know life dynamics and things but this one was almost it was i mean you can you can see the reasons for it it was deep in covid i hadn't seen my family in europe for a long time i had to spend i think it was 800 dollars on bullshit covid tests which they eliminated three weeks after my trip by the way um yeah there was i was front loading all these episodes to give myself time to go visit my family when i got to portugal i was just in this immense fog and my my mom and her uh, husband they have this they turned this kind of arid portuguese house that they've got in the gardens into like an oasis it is there was some of the most beautiful colors you'll ever see everything looked like gray to me everything was just but this, so you had that depression, but you also had that anxiety. And the observation I made kind of when I pulled myself out of it was it was like those bingo machines. You know, when, when all the balls are bouncing around, basically when the fan is on, that is the monkey mind. That's those intrusive thoughts or that same hundred thoughts that you have a thousand times a day. And meditation in this particular case turned the fan off. Those, those stresses are still there. I've still got to figure out how I'm going to pay my mortgage and, you know, all these other things. But they're not bouncing around a thousand times, you know, a day, like I said. So that was a it's kind of same thing as it doesn't eliminate the stresses from your life, but it lays them down and then you can put them in a line and go, what's most important here? Okay, I'm going to do this one first. But while those things are bouncing around, you've got no way of really beginning. Like, where the fuck do I start? All I see is, you know, ping pong balls everywhere and I can't even grab them. But meditation, and it sounds like ketamine as well, allows you to go all right, now I can see all my problems. Now let me start addressing, maybe this is the low-hanging fruit, maybe it's the biggest one first, whatever plan you choose, but now you have the ability to actually visualize them rather than just be consumed by them. 
Yeah. And I think sometimes the power in identifying where it came from or having some sort of inward journey to di- to to just receive a clue or some sort of feedback from our own psyches as to why this is coming up, why I am this way, why I cope with that substance, why I can't connect with my spouse, like something. It just brings to light that part of our psyche that needs integration. And it's part of our you know own journey to individuation. And I talk a little bit more about this in my, you know, paper. And I think that, um, another thing I do is hypnotherapy. I found phenomenal. Don't, don't discredit that and, and that work, but I find that I don't know how long now I'm, I, I didn't intend to stop with two sessions. It just, I ended up traveling for two weeks for work after those two, um, had gotten under my belt and, I don't intend to stop with that, but, and I don't know how long those, the effects of those first two sessions are going to last, but I had enough faith in this practice. And I felt like it was enough of a match for me to find out for myself. Like there comes a point where I had to get out of the research, right. And I had to just get out of the studies and, and I had done my due diligence as much as anybody could, because I'd written a ton on, I I have 169 references in my dissertation, if that gives you an indicator of how in depth it is. So if you're interested in the psycho, you know, the pharmacokinetics and all that stuff, it's in there, but it, it really is this ongoing journey and it's this cumulative process. And I don't believe, I would not, the only one thing I would credit that consistent thing that I would credit to my journey is me. Like I am, I am the main ingredient, whether it's ketamine, whether it's ayahuasca, where it's psilocybin, any of the other things, the the acupuncture, the hypnotherapy, the talk therapy, the EMDR, those are just the, the, the variables of the recipe. What psychedelics teach you is that you are the one that heals you. Everybody else is an adjunctive support piece. You mentioned hypno-psychotherapy. I just had my very first session. Uh, Courtney Starkey, she uh, she put me through, and I'm actually doing another one tomorrow. Fantastic. So, but And she talked about, you know, again, kind of like ketamine and some of these other things. You don't walk out and go, wow, everything's great. But it's these incremental changes that you start seeing. And one of the things that I want to work on is my leaning into alcohol. And I've talked about this a lot. I've never been... A big drinker but it's uh, this lie that you're going to unwind with you know a couple of beers a couple of glasses of wine has lived rent free in my head for a long time and that was one of the two things that i wanted to really focus on in this and i've drank less and less and less and less so like as we're doing now it's been i mean not this is a massive thing but it's been a week but then it was only the weekend and then it was a week before that whereas before it was almost every night not a huge amount at one time but again you add it all up it's a lot of alcohol so i'm i'm really really amazed with that as well that was another thing and then tapping into other lives parallel lives you kind of Ooh. you know taking down some of those barriers that you normally think about but it's like okay i'll go there and uh, that was interesting as well yeah my uh, my testimony to hypnotherapy would be i legitimately would not have finished my dissertation without it i i will say that 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 was the defining point. I remember reaching out to the woman I was working with. Her name's Krista. And I said, you know, we're kind of generally working on stuff, but I said, I have got an objective. Like if I don't finish this. So my first, 
your first three chapters, you have five chapters in a dissertation. The first three chapters are, are uh, a proposal. And that proposal has to be completed. Your first three chapters has to be completed so that you can build your dissertation team so that you can then run it through ethics and you can get approved so that you can recruit participants to interview and, and conduct your research. And my third chapter or my second chapter was my literature review. My literature review was massive. Like I said, I had 169 references and I had not started it. And I said, I, I want to finish this by Saturday, six days away. And she says, okay, let, let's do it. And I didn't admit this to my board. They thought I had been working on it for months. I had been avoiding and procrastinating this thing for months, let me tell you. And I just said, okay, let's do this. And so she did the hypnotherapy. She basically set me up so that my, I could imagine this, um, this, this access, this space or this room in my unconscious where all 200 pages of my dissertation were on the wall and that I could walk in and just pull down page by page. And she basically, uh, what's the word like influenced or, or help program really. I mean, with my consent, you, you, you're there for it all, right. You, you, you are, it's not what a lot of people think of these people pretending to be chickens and stuff on roosters on stages in Vegas. That's not what hypnotherapy is. You have complete power over yourself, but you're getting basically tapped into so that you can reprogram these, these unconscious processes. Right. And so she basically instilled this message that I had already written this. It was already written. I just had to write it down. And it just relieved me of the stress. And so basically the plan was I would wake up. I had six days. This was on a Saturday. I was starting on Sunday and I had to submit it by Saturday. That was my deadline that I gave my um, advisor. And uh, basically the plan was I would wake up every morning after sleeping eight hours. I would go to the gym. I would listen to my hypnotherapy. So she had it recorded. So I re-listened to it. And then I would sit down for the day and write. And I had this whole week blocked off from work, from home stuff. My boyfriend knew, don't ask me to cook anything. Don't make a mess for me. Like, this is what I'm focusing in on. And by the end of that week, I submitted my final proposal. It was amazing. And I, I got past this overwhelming feeling of like, I can't do this right? You know, like there was no generation before me that had, I mean, the fact that my mom had a high school education was incredible for her generation and her family, right? So to be achieving something like this, I mean, there was an overwhelming amount of pressure and feeling like I couldn't do it, that I couldn't even tap into consciously that this hypnotherapy helped me just remind myself, like, you've already written it. It's done. And that was just, it was very empowering. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm actually going to be asking her tomorrow. I've I've got this book. I've got chapters of the book kind of written. I know that, like I said, there's a multi-generational trauma path, but I need that thing that takes the reader by the hand and leads them through, because you're talking about 100 years of history. How do you do that? You know, how do you kind of follow that without it being some sort of history book? So uh, I'm going to, you know, because that's the thing with hypnotherapy. Obviously, you've got the addressing trauma side, but you've also got the human performance side. And the guy that introduced me to Courtney, Ken, is this one of the highest performing human beings I know. I mean, he actually had a TBI and it made him 
be able to smell and taste colors and algebraic questions. Um, uh, I think kin- kinesthesia, I think is a term, but, you know, and he is also, you know, Ironman, triathlon, mud runs, I mean, you name it, just high, high level. So you've got this kind of win-win. I'm going to take care of some of my baggage and I'm also going to address some things that are going to make me better, which I think is a big part of the mental health conversation anyway for the the, the men and women that still can't get past the, oh, you know, mental health conversations is just being a pussy kind of thing. Okay, well, then let's talk about performance. You yeah. cannot get into a flow state with a busy mind. So yeah. either way, you're going to do the same work to get to the same result. Yeah, mental fitness, uh, tactical performance, like all that stuff. You're, you're you're finding a way to create language that meets them where they're at. You know, one of the biggest things that a lot of people take away from, and this is just my my what I've gathered from those who have shared their experiences and their journeys with me, is that there's this abundance of radical acceptance for where people are, and this relief of feeling like you have to control the way other people act. And instead, you know, to, there's this connectiveness, this idea that we're all connected, that uh, we're all doing the best that we can. And that, that person, you know, you could always have an extreme Well, you can't, you know, yes, there's people that do some unthinkable horrific things, but in general, the people we're surrounded by are usually just assholes, right? They're not murderers and rapists, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're very difficult to be around and to find compassion and love in your heart for them under the influence of these and the exploration of these medicines is so relieving to the general psyche. And just, it's so much easier to go through life, not being mad at people and not being mad at yourself, finding forgiveness for yourself, finding forgiveness for your parents or your coworkers, whatever it might be. It's, it's got this great potential and something I want to make sure that I say before I forget is that, of course, I, I I explained why I picked ketamine as being this kind of general sense of like, how do we, at the very least, like, obviously, utopian, idealistic conditions would be that this got on the menu somehow, like, okay, you've got therapy that's covered, you've got EMDR that's covered. Obviously, we want those things covered in the first place. But could we potentially make, you know, ketamine an option? At the very least, usually we can't because financial stuff or whatever. But can we create this active awareness the way we've created it for talk therapy and even EMDR to say, hey, this is an option for you. No, we can't pay for it. But if that's something you want to do, here is what it is. Here's what it's good for. Here's what it's not good for. Here's how to find a therapist. And a clinician that offers this. And if you do it under X, Y, and Z settings for X, Y, and Z purposes, so you're creating boundaries, right, around it, healthy boundaries and guidance for it, you have our endorsement. People just need to be told they're allowed to do it, that they are able to go do these things. And then one of the things, like I said, I I didn't ask about other substances because for the most part, with very small exceptions that still are are in the process of developing, like Oregon and stuff, it's there's no place that these other plant medicines are legal. However, there's quite a growing underground network, at least in California, of firefighters that are participating in plant ceremonies led by shamans. Two of my eight 
participants stated they have shamans working for their departments. Really? Coincidentally, right? And so I never thought I would be having a conversation about shamanism with firemen. It's cool, right? So it's just like, it is. And so they're doing this. And and we're talking not just at the firefighter rank, we're talking all the way up to captains, battalion chiefs, and so forth. It's not just these delinquent firefighters that are off partying and just want to get high. Like they're legitimately turning to these secretive, controlled, protected, sacred services to heal. And if that's not saying something, like I said, they're going to do it whether we admit and acknowledge that it's happening or not. And obviously, we can't have the same kind of campaign around something that is innately illegal, but we can with something like ketamine. Well, I mean, it's amazing to hear, and I think this is a you know well overdue conversation, and then this the stone is slowly you know gathering momentum. I think when it comes to, I mean, sleep deprivation, that conversation was almost unheard of when I started this podcast, and I had an aha moment listening to someone on someone else's podcast, which got me thinking about it. But then, as I've gone through this mental health journey with a lot of the guests, I mean, the power of psychedelics is undeniable, and obviously, the legality is something for each individual to navigate themselves. But to know that there's a legal option which i mean arguably hopefully one day might be covered under insurance as well and remove that barrier to entry um Correct. it's another ray of hope it really is you know because our our other coping mechanisms you know lead to the opposite way you know we lean into alcohol and we get behind the, the wheel or we argue with our spouse or get into a bar fight it normally doesn't end well but they have an opportunity to choose something that's legal on the other end of the spectrum that when you use it you're actually going to come out better um, I think the you know the the ray of optimism is amazing, right? And it's great you bring up alcohol because you think about the statistics around alcohol. It's responsible for almost a hundred thousand deaths a year. It's attributed to over two hundred diseases and injury related conditions. Yet we're going to pump the brakes on psychedelics simply because it was wrongfully classified and stigmatized against in the 60s and an outdated policy no like we got to start asking questions we can't afford to keep waiting for something to work and like i said it's it has to be a curated approach for some people they don't want to talk about it and you know why because they don't always have words to explain it so what is going to what is it going to do for them to sit in a room with someone they don't know someone they don't trust and being asked to talk about something that they don't have words verbally to describe an emotional experience. Sometimes that happens. That part of the brain shuts down the part that's responsible for language during a traumatic event. So, it, and if we're dealing with triggers and activations of things that happened before we had memory of it or worse intergenerational, I can explain all that. I can't explain half the stuff that's wrong with me because it's beyond what I can consciously access. But that's where this tool, this adjunctive tool comes in. And with the rate of suicide across our industry, particularly with law enforcement, followed by firefighters, and then I think there's a lack of, personally, my opinion, I think there's a lack of EMS data with suicides. But then how many firefighters worked as EMS providers prior to, right? So like, you know what I mean? Like, is there a possibility that these get crossed over? I don't know. But with that and the the reporting is like, what, 40% is estimated 
Oh, it's the tip of the iceberg. There's no way. I mean, I've, just recently, there's been a spate of, and just today, I think, was it today or yesterday in Philadelphia, they lost one police officer to a heart attack instead of a heart attack, and then a female police officer. And I don't know what the reason is, but the only thing it said is suffered a medical emergency. And she basically was declared you know, DOA when they got to the hospital. So did she have a cardiac event? Or was it an overdose, you know, suicide, you know, but these other things. And this is the problem is even in when it's out there, this person died, they still are so, you know, hesitant to say, it. and I understand the compassion for the family and the fact there is stigma. So because of that environment, I would argue that, you know, the, the, the suicides that we know about and the overdoses are the, you know, the, the still deep in the shadows. But you combine those two elements together, there's no question that we're looking at the tip of the iceberg. On top of the fact that our retirees, the moment you step out of a fire station, you cease to become a statistic in the fire service. There is no VA. There aren't, we're not veterans. Oh, we used no. to be a firefighter. And so think about all those deaths that are completely unreported. Yes. And I it just the more vague the announcement is, the more my spidey senses wonder if it was a suicide or like you said, an overdose overdose. Sometimes they don't like what about the people who are maybe not actively completing suicide, but the ones that aren't doing themselves any favors to live and they're dying slowly and engaging in risky behavior and having overdose after overdose in just one day it takes them. Right. Like what about those people? And so when you consider the state of our health, mental health is physical health and vice versa. So you take somebody who's got, you know, let's look at the physical health of our, our agencies as well. There is a, there is a correlation between mental health and the way that it expresses itself in our physical physique as well. When you consider the state of our brokenness, we can't afford to ignore the possibility that this is a therapeutic and effective option for at least some. And so that's where I'm here to just ignite that conversation and get people talking about it and exploring it responsibly and hopefully asking more questions and advocating for people to find the relief that they deserve, really. So I mentioned I'd had uh, Dr. Catherine Walker on. I can't remember the uh, the episode number, but if you put in Catherine is with a Y, um, you'll find that episode. And she has revitalists. So they have a number of clinics around the U.S. I think it's more on the East Coast, um, but that's still just a handful. When now knowing what you know, and obviously you found the clinic yourself, for people listening, how would you advise that they search for a clinic? And then what would be some areas i mean you talked about for example a, pr a provider actually have tried it themselves like what what should they look for say they come up with five choices you know within 50 miles of their home how do they find the right one for them well um there are a couple of directories one of them's uh, uh i think called ketamindirectory.com and it's it's not an all extensive but it's uh, all inclusive list but it's got a pretty good amount of ketamine clinics listed and uh, where you can find them, their contact information and their, their price. A lot of times uh, you can expect to pay anywhere. I saw it as low as 250. If you had certain socioeconomic qualifiers uh, on average, it's usually 600. Please do not get ketamine therapy in Los Angeles. I think I saw, I shouldn't say it like that, uh, but I did see some 
practices that were upwards of $1,800 a session, which I mean, I better get a one-on-one shaman with me the rest of my life if I'm paying that much money. So you got to ask what you're getting for it, right? Um, I would start there and then and go in and vet them. Go ask questions about it. Go have a conversation. Ask them what their experience has been working with first responders and veterans, if any. Ask them uh, what is their plan of action if there is an adverse response or adverse reaction to this medicine. Do they know what to do? Have they ever had experience with it? I mean, there, there's some people that don't have great experiences with it. I, the practice I went to, they had one that had a very uh, unexpected, idiosyncratic experience, and they knew what to do. These were the, the ones who, who functioned. So my facility doesn't come with a therapist, but I have a therapist that has extensive experience. She was gone for like two weeks in Peru because she was on an ayahuasca journey in the jungle. Like that's the, she's like 76 years old. She's phenomenal, but it would be, you might not find everything you need under one roof, but can you collaborate that? Right. I talked, I remember when I was still on my meds, I was talking to my psychiatrist about, I said, I really want to consider psychedelic therapy. And she goes, well, I'll look into it. And so she tried to learn about it. And even though she didn't have an understanding about it, she was open-minded enough to say, well, let's take a look at this together. Right. So it's, it's really curating and having those conversations with the clinicians and that, that you've, that you're able to work with, if you're able to work with them. Right. And then I would say the number one thing I asked, cause I remember meeting a, a, he was a physician that ran a ketamine place. And I mean, on the surface, it looked like a great place. Uh, He was very well not versed on it. He um, appeared to have very ethical practices and it felt like a very good environment. And I asked him what his experience with the ketamine was. And he goes, oh no, I can't do that. I I have an ER to run. I have a business. I have a family that depends on me. So this is a person whose ego was too activated to allow himself to be under the influence of anything that had him feeling out of control of those things around him. And I said, no, no, I don't want it. And in that case, when you don't know what the medicine is going to do to you, because you haven't experienced it, then you're not prepared for what I'm going to experience. So those would be a few things. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate that. Like I said, I mean, this is the, the directly, especially, excuse me, the directory, especially if, if it's ketamine-directory.com, Um, That sounds like an amazing place for people to start. Now, we are going to attach the link to your dissertation on the, the webpage for this episode, jamesgearing.com. Um, for people listening, I'm sure there's a load of people now that have a, you know, a, a gamut of questions, not only on the ketamine side, but obviously on the death notification side as well. Where are the best places for people to find you online? Um, I am on most social media platforms, but I am most active on Instagram. So if you want to reach out to me there, uh, always available. You can find me uh, at emergencyresilience.com as well. You can find my contact information there and links to all of my uh, socials. Beautiful. Well, Alex, I want to say thank you. I think this was a thousand times better round two. <laughs> but uh, it's been an amazing amazing conversation and i think you know now people understand you know all the different areas from the stigma to the therapeutic elements to you know how to find the right one the study you did itself and then what we as a community as a profession can do to open more doors to get some of our men and women that are i mean truly need it the help that they need 
I agree. And I appreciate you using your platform to, to, to kind of just expand on this discussion and hopefully get more people asking questions. Mm-hmm.